Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this week we are continuing our mini-series, 100 Years of Fascism, talking about the 1950s. Now, the 1950s in general were a time of rebuilding and regrowth for fascists in Europe, the Americas, and elsewhere in the world. This was a time when leaders or members of fascist organizations that were banned or just like disappeared in the 1940s because of the access to the loss in World War II would reappear. Sometimes they were exactly the same groups of people. Sometimes they were people who, you know, grew up under those fascist regimes and still believed in it and, you know, made their own fascist organizations. Sometimes they were people who were enamored of the example of fascism in Italy or Germany and wanted to recreate it or wanted to see if they could improve upon it. You know, if they could actually build a more successful fascist movement than Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini, for example going to start talking about some of the remnants of fascist organizations. One of them in Italy was the Italian Social Movement, uh, which was founded by former fascist party people and veterans back in the 1940s uh, and received a lot of support from conservatives who feared communism in the 1950s. Now, that should be extremely familiar to anybody who has been listening to the previous episodes of 100 Years of Fascism. That's what conservatives do when faced with uh, the growth of fascist parties. Sometimes they look at them and think, well, these people might be dangerous. You know, we know the examples of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. However, they're not as dangerous to us as communists and socialists are. Fascists remain useful to the conservatives, even after the just like large-scale defeat of fascism in Europe in the 1940s. So the Italian social movement is an example of this, right? They are potentially useful political formation uh, that allows the, you know, mainstream conservatives to control the left. Uh, They, that is the Italian social movement, largely gave their political support, like their electoral support, to openly anti-communist parties, uh, such as the Christian Democratic Party in Italy. A more blatantly neo-Nazi party, well, you know, just like a straight-up neo-Nazi party, was the Socialist Reich Party, uh, which was, like I said, just an openly post-Nazi party founded in West Germany in 1949. And as I've said before, I'm a historian, so you'll have to forgive me if I uh, think about dates in terms of, you know, long decades, like a 49 or a 61 is going to slip into this 1950s discussion. That's, that, that's just how it is. So the Socialist Reich Party was founded in 1949 by some old Wehrmacht and Nazi people, by people who had been allowed to come back to politics because of the abandonment of denazification by the Western allies, as I talked about in the last episode. They were an anti-communist party, but they were also an anti-allied occupation party. They thought that Adenauer, the chancellor of West Germany, was a fraud, you know, that he was a puppet of the allies. And, you know, that's not true. He was a democratically elected leader. However, he was also in support of the continued, like, kind of occupation and regulation of German politics by allied forces, at least in Western Germany. The Socialist Reich Party did get some electoral success. They had seats in the Bundestag, and they also had pretty real successes in certain parts of uh, West Germany's regional parliaments. However, they were banned in 1952 because uh, Germany has, ever since World War II, set itself down a path of essentially not letting any, at least open, 
neo-Nazis, no open post-fascists, can really participate in government in Germany. Now, in Austria, there was also a post-fascist party. This uh, was known as the Freedom Party of Austria. It's still a party in Austria, and it was founded by a former member of the SS, a former Nazi party member, and it was pretty blatantly an extremist right-wing political party for those who felt that they couldn't participate in politics in like mainstream conservative politics. And it has remained an extremely popular and powerful party in Austria that has held government at various times. Now, outside of the three countries, Germany, Austria, and Italy, where fascists just directly took electoral power, there were also a lot of other fascist groups that emerged or saw their you know, greatest political flourishing in the 1950s. One example would be the Sumka group in Iran, uh, which was a fascist org of uh, Hitler sympathizers uh, that opposed Mossadegh, who was the democratically elected leader of Iran and an extremely prominent democratic Iranian politician prior to the mid-century turmoil that would eventually result in the emergence of the Islamic Republic of Iran in the 1970s. When Mossadegh was ousted in a coup, which was supported or kind of just directly funded and created by Western powers, um, Sumka received funding from those same Western powers, read the United States and the United Kingdom, in order to fight who else? communists and socialists. Another example of a, you know, fascist party, just like a, just like an openly fascist organization that really emerged in the 1950s was George Lincoln Rockwell's American Nazi Party, which was founded in 1959. Again, these guys were just a straight-up neo-Nazi organization. They would eventually spend most of the 1960s opposing black nationalists and black power movements, uh, although Rockwell himself would not see the conclusion of this because he was eventually assassinated by a fellow American Nazi Party member in the late 60s for his, quote, Bolshevik tendencies. Now, these kinds of extremely open neo-Nazi organizations were not exactly the norm at this time. One of the important things to learn about fascism after the 1940s is that open allusions to Hitler, to the Nazis, to Italian fascism were not the norm. Usually, instead, fascists or people on the extreme right wing would use those examples and use some of the trappings and rhetoric and policies and platforms of fascists, but wouldn't openly recognize their fascism, right? They wouldn't just come out and say like, hey, we're fascists, hey, we're neo-Nazis. And that is a, you know, it's a problem for those of us who try to pay attention to and study fascism, because it means that a lot of times when, you know, for example, I as a scholar of fascism point to, say, the Proud Boys and say, hey, this is a fascist organization. Or if somebody says like, hey, somebody like Donald Trump or Modi, the prime minister of India, is flirting with fascism, people would be like, no, but, you know, they don't do the salutes and they don't have uniforms and they don't have a youth group and blah, 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 blah. You know, like they don't fit all of these criteria. But the thing is that after fascism's just extremely serious defeat in the 1930s and 40s, you know, they, they, they lost almost everywhere in the world with the exception of maybe Spain and Portugal, right? They lost everywhere. With their defeat, it meant that a lot of people changed their aesthetics around, they changed their rhetoric around. People who are fascists do not talk about Hitler and Mussolini in the same way that leftists talk about, say, Che Guevara 
or Karl Marx, right? Uh, there aren't these kinds of universal referents, and if they exist, they're really much more like third rails, like things that people don't touch or talk about. This means that in the mid-20th century especially, it can become somewhat difficult to talk about who and what is a fascist, and things get a little bit murkier than they were in the obvious 1930s and 40s when people would just like say, like, yes, this is a fascist party, right? So the American Nazi party is an exception here, right? It's something somewhat unusual. This is why in the 1950s, with the return of the power of the KKK, uh, this sort of like third wave of the KKK after the initial one in the um, post-Civil War era and the second one in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which I've talked about previously on this mini-series, uh, this is one of the reasons that this post-war you know, post KKK is confusing because they support racial segregation, they're a paramilitary organization, but similarly they are they are not a like political party whose goal is taking over state power, which a lot of fascist organizations are. Uh, this makes them an interesting edge case, right? Additionally, in the 1950s, we see a lot of right-wing forces that are not fascist themselves, but who use and are inspired by the examples of fascist organizations, or at the very least, fascist sympathizers from the 1930s and 40s. One example of this is the people who participated in what is called the 1958 crisis in France. Uh, the 58 crisis was the result, or at least, you know, like a culmination of ongoing anger from French soldiers and French officers who were stationed in Algeria, which at the time was technically just part of France, uh, but which was, in effect, a French colony, uh, which contained a lot of white French nationals and Algerian second-class citizens, and also second-class citizens of other ethnic backgrounds. They, that is, uh, the French soldiers and French officers, were worried that France was going to let Algiers go. They were, they were correct about this. This is what exactly what happened later. Um, and they were worried that this would mean the end to their military power and occupation in Algeria, and also that it would mean that the French nationals would have to leave Algeria uh, lest they be you know, potentially oppressed in the same way that they had oppressed other people, right? That, that was their fear. So in light of this, in 1958, several generals and admirals participated in a coup uh, whose goal was to take over regional governments in uh, Algeria and also in the Mediterranean. For example, they took over the island of Corsica, which is a French territory. And they essentially were calling for the end of the government of France. Uh, at the time, the government of France was called the Fourth Republic, uh, that is the fourth instantiation of Republican government in France, the first one being uh, right after the French Revolution in 1789. So this is the Fourth Republic, the one that came after World War II, and it lasted a very short time post-war to 1958, because this coup of occupying military generals and right-wing figures in France succeeded. Their goal was to bring about the power in a somewhat like presidential dictatorial type way of Charles de Gaulle. They wanted Charles de Gaulle to come back and be the president of France again. Uh, and de Gaulle listened. He was very happy with this and wanted to become the president of France. But specifically what he wanted was to be a much more powerful president of France. And so his um, installation as the leader of France in 1958 resulted in the creation of a new French constitution, which was eventually democratically approved. But, you know, like the start of this was a military coup, like 
military generals invaded bases and government offices throughout uh, what was at the time French territory. So de Gaulle comes back to power and creates the Fifth Republic, which is the current governmental structure of France, uh, which has a significantly more powerful presidential office than the Fourth Republic had, and that is what France continues to have. So that's why this upcoming French presidential election is so important, because the French president is extremely powerful, e even among presidential systems, like even compared to the United States' presidential system, the French president is quite powerful. Uh, so de Gaulle comes back to power. Uh, similar problems with French politics would result in a 1961 coup against de Gaulle, again by right-wing military leaders in Algeria, uh, but this coup would fail and would eventually cement de Gaulle's power. Another example of a sort of complicated case regarding fascism and the right wing and populism is Juan Perón, who was the leader and president of Argentina from the mid-1940s to the mid-1950s. Now, Perón is one of the more confounding figures uh, when we talk about fascism or populism. He came to power in a right-wing military coup in the 1940s. He was its labor secretary and eventually its vice president. And in his office as the labor secretary, he became extremely popular among working people, especially working people who were in organized labor unions, because he was in favor of, you know, big social welfare programs and union recognition and minimum wage and workplace standards and things like that. There are lots of people in the world who would think about those things and assume that that means that a person has to be leftist. But again, it's fascist parties in a lot of places in Europe especially Germany and Italy, that engage in creating those kinds of policies first, right? And they don't do it just to, just to like, meet leftists at the pass and prevent them from getting support from, from union people. They actually believe in social welfare. They just believe in social welfare for specific people, for people who follow their racial, familial, sexual, and gender criteria. And Perón kind of fits that bill. Now, Perón used this popular power to become the leader of Argentina in the mid-40s, and his leadership, which would last around a decade from the mid-40s to the mid-50s, used a similar kind of rhetoric and style as many fascistic leaders of the time. However, he would also rule with his wife, Eva Perón, and uh, their time together is chronicled in a lot of Western media, uh, for example, the uh, Broadway musical Evita. Now, Perón wasn't a leftist, but he was also not exactly a right-wing figure either. Uh, he's this confusing, maybe like the example of a purely populist leader. He has flirtations with the left and the right, and people on the left and the right can find themselves a place in his coalition. Now, eventually, Perón is ousted by a right-wing military coup in the mid-50s that was worried about his extreme popularity. Um, and also, he was relatively weak at the time because Eva had died uh, a few years prior of cancer. She died extremely young, actually. Uh, um, it was somewhat of a surprise. Perón would eventually spend the next 20 years in exile in Spain uh, with some people on both the left and the right waiting for him to come back and offering him support. Now, Perón's return in the 1970s will be an important part of Argentina's right-wing trajectory from the 70s to the 80s, so I'll get to that later. But suffice it to say that he and his politics are a perfect example of the sort of shifting targets of the right uh, after the Second World War. 
there's a very good joke that encapsulates this, that, you know, that maybe encapsulates his politics. Uh, the joke is that a right-wing figure in Argentina went to visit Juan Perón while he was in exile in Spain. He gets there and he sees that on Perón's desk, there is a portrait of Benito Mussolini, whom Perón idolized as a right-wing leader back in the 1940s. Now, this right-wing leader in Argentina uh, says, oh, I'm very sorry, General, speaking to Perón, he says, I'm very sorry, General, uh, but you should know that kids these days care a lot less about Mussolini than they do about Mao. And Perón looks at, you know, Mussolini's portrait, looks at it quizzically and says, fine, very well. Um, the right-wing leader then comes back to Perón's office the next week, and what is there on Perón's desk but a portrait of Mao in the place of the portrait of Mussolini. All right, I'm going to leave it there this week. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please share it with friends, family, and comrades. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really enjoyed the podcast, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. All right, I will talk to you next week.